Hey everyone, we're here with Dr. Gavin Ortland, who's the senior pastor of First Baptist First Baptist Church of Ojai in Ojai, California. He has his PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary in Historical Theology, and he's the author of many books, including Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, Finding the Right Hills to Die on, Anselm's Pursuit of Joy, and Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation. And he's also currently writing a book on the beauty of Christian theism. And he has a great new YouTube channel that you should check out called Truth Unites. Dr. Orland, do you want to introduce yourself more and maybe add to that? Well, uh, not, that, was, that was perfect. <laughs> uh, thanks for that. Um, people often introduce me and try to say the subtitles of all the books, too, and then they can't pronounce the word proslogion. So, <laughs> so you, you, did, you did really good there. No, that's it other than that. I'm a pastor, uh, you, I think you said this, at a church in Ojai, which is just north of L.A., and then we have uh, four kids, and my wife's name is Esther, and um, those are pretty much the highlights about me. Okay, so you're so you live in California now. Have you done a lot of hiking uh, in Yosemite or done anything like that out there? Yeah, we I do a lot of hiking. We love the outdoors. That's probably our favorite thing about California. We had a trip, so I've never been to Yosemite, which is crazy. But we didn't grow up here, so that's it's been on our bucket list ever since we got here. We had a trip scheduled to go to Yosemite um, in August of this year, so last month as of the time of this recording. And, um, you know, with the pandemic, it just, uh, it just couldn't happen. So we had to, to divert into a different sort of vacation. So still haven't made it to Yosemite, but I do a lot of hiking where we live in Ojai. There's some great hiking. So that's probably a weekly thing that I love to do. That's nice. Yeah. One of our like hiking trip plans kind of got canceled too because of the pandemic and all that. It's kind of sad. I know. And it feels weird to live in Ojai, which isn't that far from those beautiful parks that are like world tourist destinations. And I really want to take my kids, but we just haven't had the chance to do it. Part of it is we had our fourth child in May. So, um, and the other three uh, are still pretty young. So the, the oldest two are kind of homeschooling now because they go to a public school, but we're doing all that from home out here because uh, schools are still closed right now. So it's just been a, a blur of a season, but uh, I have it on my Google calendar to schedule a trip to Yosemite for next summer. So hopefully we'll make it happen. Who knows what 2021 will be like. 2020 has already been so unexpected, but uh, hopefully it'll be a better year next year. Yeah, for sure. I haven't spent a lot of time near LA, but my dad and I do a lot of mountain climbing each summer. So we've been in the Sierras and in Yosemite a lot. Very nice. Okay. So you could tell people more about it than I could. Yeah, I, I know it's beautiful though. Yeah, you should definitely make up a make a trip up there uh, next year if you can. We'll definitely try. Yeah. Yeah. So, like Michael said, uh, you recently started a YouTube channel called Truth Unites. So, um, and if anyone hasn't listened to it yet, you, should, you definitely should go check it out. It's about apologetics and theology. But uh, do you want to like talk a little bit about that and like what got you uh, interested in making a YouTube channel and kind of what your um, thought process was going into that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for the chance to talk about this because this is honestly the great passion of my life right now in terms of my study and where my mind is at. And I didn't really expect that, but um, I was sort of looking for a new project. I had several other book projects that had been completed and sent off to the publisher and uh, 
I, I have, there's a local bookstore here and I was on my day off. Sometimes I'd like to just get out and go read, go to the park. And uh, I was there and I happened to see several of the books by the so-called new atheists. So Christopher Hitchens, uh, I will get all the titles right now. Um, I think it's the subtitle is how religion, oh yeah, it's God is not great, how religion poisons everything. Um, Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, Sam Harris, The End of Faith. I think those were the first three. And I'd had, I've been watching YouTube videos for the longest time of William Lane Craig debates. There's actually a lot of apologetic stuff that happens on YouTube. It's kind of interesting. A lot of people go to YouTube with their, um, with their questions. And even about like intellectual things, which is interesting. Um, so I just, I just remember this longing came over me to kind of turn my, uh, my pursuit to apologetics for the next season of my life. Part of that is I've been through seasons of doubt and angst about my faith. Part of that is I've had several friends who have just walked away from the faith and it really blindsided me. I did not see it coming for them. Um, and part of it is I just have a love of philosophy. I, I, I love thinking about ideas like arguments for God's existence and that kind of thing. And YouTube is a real mission field. Um, there's lots and lots and lots of people who will never go to church, but will also never read a book. You know, so one reason for writing a blog or writing a book is that it might reach people who wouldn't come to church, but there's lots of people who won't go to church and they won't ever read a book, just to be honest. I mean, maybe they'll read some books, but they're not going to read a book about philosophy or apologetics, but they'll watch a video. And in fact, there's a huge, it just seems like there's a lot of interest in that on YouTube. So, and, and YouTube and podcasts are both just continuing to skyrocket in 2020. So it just came from this sense of personal interest, having the, the space to kind of direct my passions to something new, and then seeing a need. I actually think there's a need for more on, there's a little bit of, there's a lot of like Roman Catholic and, um, uh, and sometimes Roman Catholic Protestant dialogue. There's some philosophy. There's not really much theology on YouTube at all. And so I'm approaching apologetics in a particular way. I do have a book coming out that I'm uh, not sharing the details about yet until February of next year, but it's about apologetics and um, it's about the beauty of, so I, the whole idea is that we can appeal to beauty as well as truth to both and, um, the gospel should be seen to be beautiful and good as well as compelling and, and plausible. And so the, the book is using four different arguments to, in a narrative way to show how Christianity tells a story about the world that is beautiful and that is enchanting and that is wonderful and that has a place for justice, a place for dignity a place for the arts, you know, a place for all the things that the human heart is drawn towards. Whereas a naturalistic worldview in which there is no God really doesn't for those things. Um, and so that's what that book is about. So my channel is called Truth Unites. The, the heart behind, and this has been a dream of mine for years, and I've actually never shared this before, so it's fun to share this with you guys. But Truth Unites, the, the heart behind that is just that we're in a time of polarization. There's so much anger and division. I just want to be a voice who's pushing against that, even if it seems hopeless at times, to be a voice to just try, because I think truth should be drawing us together. Um, but I also think it's the truth that should draw us together. And so the focus of the channel is about both theology and apologetics, trying to speak to those outside the church and those inside the church, and just sort of coalesce around the gospel. 
um, and come together around the gospel because I see that as a need in our times where there's so much division. So I've just started it about three weeks ago. I'm just chugging along at like 640 subscribers. So I'm just starting, you know, just building it. And I have like seven videos, but videos are about, um, you know, different arguments for God, like from music and math and, uh, 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 you know, random stuff. I'm going to put my next one I'm going to do is about gratitude and the power of gratitude in my life to help overcome um, seasons of depression and seasons of sadness and just cultivating gratitude. What a great practice that is. So it's, it's kind of an eclectic channel in some ways, but the focus is on, on theology and apologetics. So I hope it's useful for people. I kind of took the attitude of, I have so much fun doing it, that even if it doesn't help anybody else, it's fun for me, but I really hope it helps other people too. Yeah. That's really inspirational. I think a lot of those thoughts are like kind of our, our thinking of making the podcast when we first did. And recently we kind of like went through the same thing of we saw a new platform that would have allowed us to like put some, something out there. Um, that's not really seen very often. We made an Instagram TV uh, channel through our, through our podcast and Instagram. So that's really inspirational for, for me. And I bet for Michael too, of like other people are like, just trying to like reach a new platform and like see if we can like do what we can to like find that need. And, and for us, it was, we thought a lot of people didn't really know the whole story of the Bible from start to end. And we were kind of, we're kind of attacking that, uh, that, that front right there. So that's really inspirational for me at least. For sure. Awesome. Yeah. yeah what you guys are doing is awesome. And I, I, I love it. I, I just think it, you know, there's, for me, I had to push through some fears of like, how will this come across? Will it seem like it's self promotion or will it seem like it's just random or will I, it's really vulnerable putting yourself out there, especially by video, because you're always nervous that people are going to, you know, make negative comments about how you come across or something like that. But the, the, the feeling of just wanting to go for it because you care about the content and you care about what your message is, what you want to get across. Um, that's an awesome thing. So yeah, you guys are doing great. Thank you so much. So uh, speaking more to your YouTube channel, uh, two of the videos that we really found like super interesting were the ones about how math and music point us towards theism. You want to talk a little bit about these like two ideas? We found this to be like super interesting. Sure. I I find this super interesting too. So if I get going on too long here, just interrupt me and, and you know tell me how this is coming across because sometimes I get into it and I, I want to make sure I don't go, um, you know, not too long, but also not too brief. But um, I love the idea that there's lots of different arguments for God, that it's not just about one argument or two arguments, but there's lots of different arguments for God. There's a really cool book that just came out. I think it's called Two Dozen or So Arguments for God's Existence. And it's a bunch of philosophers unpacking a bunch of arguments that Alvin Plantinga had sketched out just a brief like paragraph of each of them. And so it's just hilarious because it's like the argument for God from color or something like that. And you're like, okay, I don't think color necessarily proves God, but you start reading and it's like what these arguments are all showing is that um, God is the most, is the context that makes the most sense of the world as we experience it. And some of them may be more compelling than others, but I love this idea of thinking of lesser known arguments for God's existence. Now, I was skeptical that these could really work when I first looked at them, but over time, I've become convinced they actually are good arguments. So to start with the argument for math, the basic, there's different variations of this, but the basic idea is the nature of math is such 
that it seems to suggest that there must be something eternal out there. And there's several reasons for that. One is that math itself seems to be, seems to involve eternal necessary truths. So if you ask someone this question, if the physical universe were to collapse into non-existence, would it still be the case that two plus three equals five? And most people would say yes, because it's like, what else could two plus three equal? You know, it's not dependent on any physical reality. It's just a mental truth. But then the question is, because what naturalists believe, that's the idea that there's nothing beyond nature, is that everything ultimately is physical. There's nothing beyond the physical realm. And it just raises the question of where does this mental realm get its permanence and stability? And uh, not everyone believes that mathematical truths are eternal and necessary like that. But that's the majority view among mathematicians, and it's the far majority view among human beings throughout history. And it makes a lot of sense to think of these things. What Christians have argued is that these things come from the thoughts or the mind of God. Um, and if that isn't the case, then I suppose someone who doesn't believe in God is just a naturalist will just have to provide a different explanation. But it's the thing is, the physical universe is in constant change, and it's not eternal, and it's not necessary. So it just raises the question of where does, it, where does this mental realm come from? And as strange of an argument as it seems, there's a lot of uh, agnostic philosophers who, who are kind of compelled by it. Um, Thomas Nagel is one that people could look up and read his writings if they're interested. People often also argue from the applicability of math to the physical universe. Why does it work so well? That's another question that kind of comes up. The argument for music um, basically is a, what's called an abductive argument, which simply means it's an inference to the best explanation. It basically observes that human beings experience transcendence while listening to music. So it's not just that we like music, it's that it feels significant and it feels like it pulls us up into something meaningful and transcendent. If you think about the, your favorite movie and the way the, the, the soundtrack is going, at the height of the movie, it, it feels like it means something profound and, and so forth. Well, on a naturalistic worldview, the explanation of that is that music is sort of tricking our brains because we evolved. So everything about us on a naturalistic worldview is explained by music or by, by uh, survival. It's uh, only what has allowed genes to be passed on generation to generation. That's the winnowing effect of natural selection. So things like, even things like laughter and um, per, different personalities, um, our love of, of the arts, including music, all of that becomes explained by these evolutionary mechanisms. And on a worldview like that, it's tough to know uh, what would kind of make music itself meaningful as opposed to um, it triggers our brains that way because it's connecting with things that had survival value. And so you have this view of music that's a much more dismal, kind of depressing view of music on a naturalistic worldview where it's an illusion, basically. If there's, if it's not communicating anything significant to us. It's just tricking our brains into uh, making that association by triggering things that had survival value. And um, I've, I've kind of cashed that out in, in, with more nuances in my writing. I'm just trying to give a summary of it now, but... 
basically uh, on an abductive argument, you say, well, what's more likely? What's more meaningful? What's more plausible? That or on the theistic view, music is incredibly meaningful um, because it reflects the glory of God. And many Christians have spoken of music as a language. Peter Kreeft called music the original language in both J.R.R. Tolkien's The Silmarillion and in C.S. Lewis's The Magician's Nephew. Music is how the world is created. The creator, the angels, or the or Aslan create through music. And so um, basically the, the argument is that theism gives you a more powerful explanatory framework to actually experience music and, and the transcendence that's associated with it. And as, again, I was skeptical that you make a good argument from this, but it's amazing how many people have actually come to believe in God because of the arts and music being one example. There's lots of famous anecdotes that I talk about in the book about people who, upon hearing beautiful music, their, their skepticism of God is, is reduced or broken down altogether. So I like arguments like that. I find them fascinating. I don't put all my eggs in those baskets, but I still think they're kind of useful and, and interesting. Yeah, I liked in that video where you were uh, contrasting the naturalistic worldview and the theistic worldview, and you talked about how in the naturalistic worldview, it's like an opiate or a distraction, but for us, mm -hmm. it's like a clue or a hint at our longing. I thought that was a really good comparison. Yeah, that helps me to think about it. So it's the metaphor is of uh, a man on a field dying and he gets an opiate to dump, to, to mute the pain while he's dying. That's like music in a naturalistic worldview. It's pleasant insofar as it's a distraction from what reality is ultimately like. Um, whereas on a theistic worldview, it's like a window to someone who's imprisoned. And it gives you a little clue of what reality ultimately is like. And again, it's like that's a much more satisfying way of experiencing music, I think. Yeah, for sure. And one thing that Michael and I had talked about before uh, uh, we got on the call with you is how math is like sometimes seen as more of like an, an analytical thing, whereas music is like seen as more of an artistic or creative um, way of thinking. But like, can you like see any ways how like the argument with math and the argument with music, how those kind of like go hand in hand um, in, in pointing people to God and, and um, how they could actually be like, like two sides of maybe the same coin? Yes, I, I track with your thoughts there totally about one seems more kind of appealing to the head and the other to the heart. Um, one's more analytical, one's more emotional. Um, and in the book, I talk a lot about different philosophies of music and how music affects us at that visceral level. We feel music. It can, it's like a language that communicates without any rational content. Um, but uh, I think you're right, though, that, yeah, they both kind of connect in the sense that they're both aspects of our world that seem to have an incredible meaning to them, an incredible meaning associated with them. That's kind of the overall head I put these in is under what people call the teleological argument or argument from design, which is basically saying our world doesn't look random. It looks like it's designed, and designed implies a designer. I would just see these as examples of that. Music it seems incredibly meaningful and intricate math uh, as well. It's many people speak of the beauty of math and the kind of elegance of math. I can't relate to that as much personally because I never enjoyed math growing up, but I can understand and I, 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 it's a consistent observation from mathematicians. So both of them are similar in that sense in that they seem to be 
aspects of our world that just make more sense on the supposition that there's a, an infinite mind behind our world than they do if everything is just sort of random natural processes. And, you know, you also have another video, uh, I guess it touches a little bit on what you, the things you've already talked about, but it's about beauty and how that affects our mission today. Uh, you mm -hmm. want to talk a little bit about that, um, how like beauty um, also does like similar things and how that kind of ties it all together? Absolutely sure, yeah. Um, this is the main theme of the book. Well, the three main theme emphases of the book are I use abductive arguments, which I already explained. I put them in a narrative frame. So I use arguments as a way to tell a story. And then I uh, appeal to beauty with the arguments as well as plausibility. And uh, so I, the video you're referencing was about why it's important to do that with beauty. And I would say, um, I think there's many reasons um, the, uh, not just Christians, but Christians historically, but many others as well have talked about the true and the good and the beautiful as the three transcendentals. And, um, many Christians have talked about how important it is to coordinate theology with all three of those things, not just focusing on truth, but also showing how the gospel is good and showing how the gospel is beautiful. There's a Roman Catholic theologian named Hansers von Balthasar, who wrote a huge book all about the importance of beauty in theology. And I was taking a look at that uh, in connection to my interest in this. But I just think I would summarize it by saying, I think um, if people only hear that the gospel is true and they don't hear that it is beautiful and good, it will be less compelling to them because it won't appeal as effectively to their whole person. We're not robots. We don't make decisions just with our minds. So I'm not at all advocating for an appeal to beauty rather than truth. I think it's a both and. I think we need truth as well. I think we should make compelling arguments that Christianity is true. But doing arguing that it's both true and beautiful, I think, is, is a more powerful, more comprehensive apologetic. And... In the book, I talk about how this is so important right now because our culture is very disenchanted and cynical and apathetic. I think the greatest barrier to apologetics is not opposition. Um, many times, at least, I think the greatest barrier is sheer apathy. People are just, <laughs> they're not already asking a question. You know, they're not, they're not searching on YouTube for things. I think our culture is also very distracted and there's just a lot of um, busyness and the way social media affects us. There's less reflection, uh, unfortunately, and slow, methodical coming to conclusions. We tend to make more snap judgments. And I'm actually very concerned about that. But it, it also presents a barrier for apologetics. And then there's such outrage and polarization happening in our world right now. Beauty is a way that we can try to speak to all of that because beauty appeals to the heart. And it cuts through the distraction. It can reach the disenchanted and the apathetic. I mean, there's lots of people who say, I don't care about God. I don't care about religion. But in the context of the arts, movies, literature, music, you know, their heart can be drawn to something. And so beauty is, is just an important part right now, I think, of where our culture is at and why we need to be um, showing the beauty of the gospel as well as its truthfulness. For sure. So we've talked a little bit about the church and how it functions and its mission and 
uh, just how it operates. And you wrote this great book called Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals. Uh, the subtitle is Why We Need Our Past to Have a Future. And just kind of introducing it, you say this book is fueled by the conviction that one of the church's greatest resources for navigating her present challenges is her very past, indeed her entire past. And you kind of, in the book, you kind of jump into what it looks like to retrieve theology from the past, um, particularly in the patristic and med medieval ages. But just in general, why do you think it helps our mission today? And why does it help the church function uh, in its worship of God uh, if we do retrieve theology from the past? Well, thanks so much for those kind words about the book. And, and certainly this is a big topic. I mean, we could talk about this for a long, but just to give a snapshot, I would say I actually use three metaphors in the book. And all of this came just out of my own experience um, of just engaging pre-modern theologians, uh, some of the church fathers, and just finding that so rich, the things you can learn from them. So this book very much, the, the, the interpretation of all that kind of came after. For me, it started with the experience of it. But the three metaphors I use are going to school, traveling, and seeing a counselor. And those are three things that can be metaphors for what it is like to engage in theological retrieval and learning from the past. So going to school is a metaphor for education. And that's what it's like, you know, to read someone like Thomas Aquinas or St. Augustine. It just teaches you, it imparts categories you learn. The, it's a wonderful way to learn. But the, the second and the third are the ones that I find really interesting and that have been most helpful for me. So travel, when you travel to a different country and you live abroad or you know, even if you just spend a couple of weeks abroad, I remember for me, I studied for one semester in England when I was in college, and that was right during the war with Iraq, and we had debates about that, and I remember having heard the perspective about that from a different culture was helpful for me, and I thought, ah, it's, it's, it's healthy to not just listen to, to Americans talk about this, but to see how we're being perceived, and if you go, I've heard other people talk about Jonathan Haidt in his book, The Righteous Mind, um, talks about how so much of his reflection about kind of the nature of our political disagreements, which is that book is all about, and religious disagreements, started for him by a travel to India, because people have different a different worldview um, outside of the West. And I think the past is similar to that in that it just helps you see the blind spots and limitations of your own time. You know, we all tend to just assume that our way of looking at the world is the normal way. Um, but if we lived 500 years ago, we would think and function very differently. Um, and so just engaging the past is a great way to get perspective on your own culture, on context. And I think that's true for theology. Current evangelical theology has a lot of oddities, uh, a lot of things that are just kind of eccentric or strange and reading in other times can expose that and help us grow. And then the last metaphor is a counselor where it's kind of like if you have a family situation and you go to a counselor, it's helpful to get an objective outside uh, perspective on what you're facing. And I think church history can be like that. There's lots of feuds that we have today, you know, a liberal side and a conservative side and fighting between the two where if you go back a thousand years and see how theologians at that time were facing the issues we're facing, it 
can open, it can be a healing experience. It can open up ways of coming back together. And uh, it kind of helps us see outside of the divided, polarized nature of things today. So those are just three examples of just for me of why I found it so useful to read in other times and not just read contemporary books. And I think that's a really healthy thing and a good mark of humility to be willing to consider perspectives from other times. Yeah, for sure. You, you talk in the book a little bit later about how particularly among the younger generation of evangelicals, I don't know if you're referencing like people our age, but uh, there's like a, like a lot of people feel empty or dislocated because there's less of a sense of their faith being rooted in the past. Um, and I felt, I felt like that was largely true because, you know, we don't often hear a lot about Aquinas or Augustine. And uh, I found your book about Augustine's doctrine of creation really interesting because um, I, I've read the Confessions and his City of God book, but hadn't engaged with, I know he talks about creation, both of those, but like hadn't read any of his commentaries on Genesis or anything of that sort um, and found that really interesting. And so just just learning this, uh, learning more about Augustine's doctrine of creation in this book, uh, you talk about how a lot of the time we focus on the creation debates of our day, and so we lose focus on the most important emphases of Genesis one and two. So, what do you what do you think some of those are? Like, what are some of the things you think we need to refocus on when we open up to the first pages of the Bible? Hmm. Well. Thanks again for the chance to talk about this book. This is the most recent one, and this was a fun one to work on. Um, just to go back a moment, when you mentioned younger people, that I should have mentioned this earlier, but part of the interest in retrieval as well is that a lot of people are becoming Roman, are leaving evangelicalism to become Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, or going to traditions that are perceived to have more rootedness. And part of what I'm arguing for in that book is you can actually, as a Protestant and as an evangelical Protestant, be rooted in church history. So that's so awesome uh, that you're reading, Michael, the, you know, Augustine's City of God, that kind of stuff. It's just awesome. I love it. Um, yeah, so Augustine on creation, he, this was um, a major doctrine for him. He wrote five different commentaries on Genesis, if you include the sections in uh, City of God and Confessions. He toiled, it was re relevant to his own conversion back to orthodoxy. Um, when he understood how, how you could interpret Genesis 1, that helped him back to be, becoming a Christian. And uh, he labored throughout his life about what it means that we are creatures and just the implications of that all for all aspects of our life. There's so much to this. I would say that in general, evangelicals have a, a relatively weak doctrine of creation Usually we don't have it. That's why I think like things like common grace. Sometimes I didn't know much about common grace when I was growing up in evangelical. It was like all about saving grace. And common grace is that grace God gives to every single person that helps the world move from one generation to the next without falling apart. So a lot of common grace is manifested in government, in the arts, in technology, every part of human culture. And, um, Augustine has helped me think so much about why it's important for us to understand that. And then the idea of vocation, um, the arts, there's so many things that come out of the doctrine of creation that help us live as human beings. I mean, that's the thing in the church. Sometimes we put so much emphasis upon being a Christian and growing in your sanctification. We put less upon just being a human being. <laughs> 
and and what it means to be a bodily creature, um, uh, what it means to be made in God's image, what it means to have a soul, all these things that are implied by our, our being creatures of God and specifically made in his image. So Augustine has helped just broaden my vision of creation. Um, he has helped me think about the fact that God is our sole ultimate source of happiness. So all goodness is from God. I mean, this is such a basic point, but it's actually a very practical thing to think about is that any time we ever enjoy anything, from a glass of lemonade to a game of tennis to a good night's sleep, whatever, we're enjoying something that we receive from God because all goodness is from his hand. And that's the kind of thing that Augustine uh, really emphasizes. And he has this idea that all creation is sort of tilted towards God, imperfect and longing to be completed in God. And so even apart from sin, uh, creation is kind of... um, tilted towards God, imperfect, aching for its completion in God. Uh, And that's just an amazing way to think about the world. And um, it kind of sets a foundation for all the rest of theology. So I've found Augustine so helpful in many ways. Many specific points of his thought are helpful in in that book. I talk about Genesis 1 and Adam and Eve and animal death and those kinds of things too. But I also just think Augustine's helpful for just reminding us how big the doctrine of creation is and how practically relevant that is to our lives each day. For sure. I think one thing that the book helped me think about was just slowing down when I'm outside because you, you talk about how, for instance, he was just fascinated with insects and how God made all these little creatures and he just sounded very observant. And so easy, like you mentioned playing tennis, it's easy to just go straight to the tennis courts. I play a lot of tennis and you know, hit the ball around, then get straight back in the car and not really like slow down and stop and think or anything. And he seemed like he was very observant of creation when he was talking about these things. Yes, he is. Even to the point of, it's kind of funny how much he'll, he'll talk about insects, but he always is praising God for insects, you know, uh, ants and slugs and all these animals that you wouldn't think of as like all that praiseworthy, but he finds it amazing the way they work so perfectly and so forth. And yeah, just, I mean, right now with the busyness of the world, the ability to slow down and enjoy God's creation. I don't actually think that's a small, that's a really important thing. My uh, Brett McCracken has a great book coming out called The Wisdom Pyramid. It's all about how social media should be kind of the smallest um, uh, way of getting information and engaging and so forth. And scripture... Um, books, other things should be bigger. And one of the ones he talks about in this pyramid of priorities is being is nature, being outside in nature. And I actually think that's really helpful in a busy world, in a distracted world, slowing down. And, and um, there's a lot of thought in the Christian tradition about the way God's glory is communicated through the world he has made. And it's a wonderful thing to just slow down and enjoy the wherever we live, um, enjoy the beauty of what is around us. It's a simple thing, but Augustine had a lot to say about that. For sure. It really seemed like it. And just as a, just as a last question, we're starting to do this in this season, but do you have a favorite coffee drink or do you, do you enjoy drinking coffee or do you go anywhere to, to get coffee or anything like that? 
Yes, I, and you guys know my love of coffee because I was finishing a cup when we started this time. So, um, yeah, I well, but I'm not a real particular. Right now, we have a Keurig that we've started using since this past uh, Christmas, and we get these little coffee things that are from Pete's Coffee. And I don't think Pete's is out where you guys live. It's a West Coast thing. I first learned of Pete's Coffee when I was in Pasadena, the area, but that's really good coffee. So that's what I've been drinking lately. But I went through this whole thing about a year ago of where I got off coffee because I felt like I was getting, I was drinking too much of it. I got off and I stayed off for about three months. And then I thought, what, why am I doing this? This is, <laughs> uh, and so I, but it was good for me because I showed I do have the willpower to do this. And then now I enjoy it all the more but I have to be very careful to kind of regiment how much I take. So I'm not kind of constantly building up in how much I'm using. So right now I just have two of those each morning and then I keep it at that with the occasional afternoon as you guys have witnessed me doing today. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, I try to drink a, just a couple cups of coffee a day, but I have a, there's a pastor I listen to and he, he talks about like um, make sure you're like, uh, withdrawing from things like weekly or monthly or yearly to make sure mm. you're not mastered by anything. So I occasionally take like a week off of drinking it, but three months is a, a hefty goal there. I don't know if that's in my near future or not with academics all the time. Oh man. Yeah. It was brutal. Maybe wait till academics are done. You're out of school. The thing is the hardest part, the th once you're off, I found I kind of adjusted sort of, but the process like they say it takes about two weeks for your body to adjust so i would go down by a half cup every two weeks and during so it was a total of like two months of weaning myself off and that was not pleasant there were some days where i felt normal but most days i felt kind of like you know how it is if you don't drink enough if you've been drinking coffee then you stop and you just feel a little sluggish so that was not a pleasant process i'm glad it's glad it's done with yeah, I bet. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today and talking to us about apologetics, theology, uh, theological retrieval, Augustine, and just so many other things. Thanks for sharing your time with us. It was fun. I hope I can talk with you guys again and meet you in real life. I love what you guys are doing. So thanks for letting me be a part of it. Oh, for sure. If I'm ever near Ohio, I'll let you know. Sounds great. Have a thank great you so much. Thank you. All right, guys. Have a great rest of your day. You too.